You're listening to episode 34 of the National Centre for Writing podcast with me, Simon Jones. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's Wednesday, 6th of March, 2019, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, and this week we have a conversation with Charlene Teo, debut author of Ponty. It's described as an exquisite story of friendship and memory spanning decades, at once an astounding portrayal of the gaping loneliness of teenagehood and a vivid exploration of how tragedy can make monsters of us. Charlene was in town for UEA Live and spoke to Florence Reynolds here about the origins of the book and her sources of inspiration. Thank you so much, Charlene, for coming in to see us at the National Centre for Writing today. Um, and I just wondered if, to start with, you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about Ponty, the journey that you've taken to uh, bring this book into the world, and a little bit about who's in it and what's it about. Um, well, Ponty is about an um, actress named Amisa Tan who stars as a um, Pontiana, that's a Southeast Asian um, mythical cannibalistic entity. Um, in a, a very schlocky trio of horror movies uh, made in Singapore between the late 70s and the early 80s, the Ponty films, um, which fail spectacularly. Mm. Um, so it's really about her um, at the centre of it, um, but it is also kind of haunted by a different sort of spectre um, in terms of her relationship with her teenage daughter Sue, um, growing up as an awkward, near-friendless 16-year-old in, in the year 2003. And um, the final strand of the, of the novel is um, narrated by Cersei, who's um, Sue's only friend in school. And as an adult, she works as a social media consultant um, on a remake of the Ponty films. So um, being forced to watch them, um, these kind of personal and, and cultural relics in a way, um, Cersei is, is um, um, driven to kind of confront her relationship with the mother and daughter um, and it's, it's a very complicated one that she looks back on um, full of guilt, nostalgia and shame. So it's really about these three women and it's also about the evolution of Singapore um, from the late 60s to the, to the near future. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. And how did you arrive at those three characters, but also how their lives have kind of interweave at those different points in time? It's such an unusual structure. Um, um, well, I think it, it always originated from the, the idea of these horror movies and the idea of this um, particular sort of Singaporean superstition uh, rooted in Malay, Malay mythology, but um, the Pontianak figure also has um, equivalences in uh, different Southeast Asian countries. So obviously Pontianak is a city in, in, in Indonesia. Um, and there's also, um, I was just told actually from, by, by a Filipino friend on the MA, um, MFA this year, he said that there's a equivalent in, in the Philippines as well. Right. Um, so I, I think it's, the root of the kind of root of interest for me was how and why um, we transmit these oral traditions and these these kinds of um, myth mythological figures of horror. Um, I think fear is is a very very interesting thing because it sits on the same continuum as excitement and enthrallment. Like why are we fascinated by particular mythologies? Why are we drawn to particular superstitions? And um, my original impulse was to write um, a novel narrated by such a creature, like um, a, basically a creature that was a figure of superstition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as I know, a made up a mythological kind of figure, um, and, and juxtaposing that with um, contemporary anxieties. So now we're a lot more scared of, you know, my, my, my Uber account was hacked into last year and mm -hmm. someone was driving around uh, their Ubers and, you know, chalking up like over a thousand, thousand pounds in, in, in bills 
um, you know, <laughs> three days driving all around Moscow. So I think like that's what we're a lot more afraid of nowadays, and rightly so. The more deeply entrenched we are with digital culture, mm. um, but that also speaks to how the things that we fear and the things we're anxious about they they move at quite a rapid rate. So like say the transmission of oral oral, oral traditions and and um, superstitions, you know, it's it's disseminated in a completely radically different way now than it was twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's really what what interests me. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And there's. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating novel, and I'm so glad I get to pick your brain about it a little bit because there's this one encounter that Amisa, the the uh, the film actress character, she has as a child in her village before she moves to the big city and hits the big time. Yeah, and you see kind of the the ripple effect of that. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's not read the book, but yeah. the ripples of that one encounter. You see that kind of come back through the book. And yeah, I'm great. That you, um, I'm glad that you, you picked up on that. Um, I think the you know she's a child. I think she's about ten years old when when um, she has this kind of uncanny encounter. And and um, obviously it's in the book, like also to kind of highlight the circumstances within which she was placed in in, in, in that situation. I think from from a position of feeling quite uncared for, mm. um, and that that is something that kind of follows her throughout her life, like this this feeling of um, a sort of inadequacy and kind of wanting to be seen as more more than just um, an objectified sort of figure of, of beauty or an erotic object, um, which mm. which she is very, very commonly sort of pigeonholed as. Um, but yeah, there, there are a kind of cu- couple of strange encounters in, in the book, I think, that um, I, I think I'm, I always just keep going back to. I, I think that I, I'm very preoccupied with, with that kind of weird line of strangeness. I wouldn't call it magical realism, but just more like the subjective, subjective kind of surreal um, situations that that we can find ourselves in. Or I also really love kind of vaguely surrealist cinema. So I think yeah. that kind of seeps into like the stories that I try and I try and write. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And yeah, that's really fascinating. That that line between reality and dream and reality dream. like um yeah. I, I i remember my dreams a lot but i think that 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 the sign of that is that i'm not sleeping very deeply so you're not supposed to remember remember them but um sometimes i have incredibly mundane dreams like where i'm basically just doing admin yeah. or i have dreams <laughs> where i just go through my whole day and particularly when i used to work in a, in a small sort of publishing office I, I would kind of wake up put on all my clothes go to work you know have a sad little sugary yogurt and then realize i was actually asleep Oh. <laughs> and I, I remember feeling incredibly like invaded in my subconscious because I was like, well, I see these people more than I see my parents or anything. And, and they've invaded my subconscious, my dream life. Even my dream life is becoming incredibly banal, what's yeah. going on. Um, so, and conversely, you can also have um, things that happen in, in, in daily life, like just through noticing mindfulness, if you will, like that, that, that kind of lend reality a kind of like pattern of like weirdness like I just passed by on my way here um, I was I was in this coffee place in the center of town and I was going down you know that street with Cinema City yeah and then um, there's this there's this um, red telephone box full of balloons in there yeah you know that one right <laughs> yeah that is weird <laughs> I, I mean I just think it's weird like it, if you see it every day I suppose it's not so weird yeah, but I find I'm, it strange <laughs> I can't explain it but sinister sinister yeah some kind of 
And I mean, I think Nor- Norwich is quite a, Norwich is quite a strange dreamlike city. Like there are a lot of things that strike me as pretty surreal. Like there, there's so many old pubs, you know, with their beams. And I remember that there's that little bar. Is it Gonzo's tea room with this really old pug in it? Yeah, I I'm find not sure that strange. If the pug is still oh, with no, us. But, oh gosh! But yeah, <laughs> I remember the pug was actually around maybe four years ago. And it looked like it was on its last legs. To be fair, it was wheezing yeah. a lot. Oh, oh, that's really sad. Sorry. <laughs> the the really real thing about the book for me, I mean, Sue Min, so the daughter of Amisa, the film film star. Sue's voice is so real, and it was just amazingly honest and oh. incisive portrayal of all the kind of anxiety of being a teenage girl. And um, how did you kind of construct her character and? in you know looking at that line of truth and and uh reality and maybe something beyond reality Sue Min is so grounded in the everyday um. I think I think it's it's been interesting um getting different responses to the book like different people have different favorite characters I think I would say Sue is the, probably the most popular yeah. she's very sweet I think like when when I was writing her because she's in first person, and so is Cersei, mm. but um, the Mesa Strand is completely in third person. It was it was quite um, a fun project for me to kind of um, bear in mind particular quirks in their language and, and um, modes of expression or, or what they were withholding. I, I felt I always wanted Sue to be like um, like sentimental and quite a sweet person, a little bit of a moper. Um, but I feel like the, the particular tendencies and um, observations that she has that everyone that's been like a lonely teenager at some point, you know, would have, would have felt. So I guess it's kind of just an act of like consciously remembering and trying to kind of articulate those feelings, which I I think like don't necessarily really go away. I think like, like we, 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 we fall into such patterns of complacency as adults and also like defensive expression. Like, you know, we, 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 we become more withholding the older we get, or we kind of, um, learn what is and isn't sensible to say. But in a way, I think if you unpeeled that, um, there are sort of common, common impulses and common sort of sentimental urges and fixations that, that you know, we carry through, through our lives. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, she was a great character, I think. Yeah. yeah. I was a lot sillier than her when I was a teenager. It's <laughs> a lot more kind of frivolous, less sensitive. Um, but yeah, I, I, like, I like her, and, and yeah. Yeah, she's, she's a great character and she comes across as very serious but given I saw a brilliant interview with you where you're talking about kind of um, horror genre and kind of looking at gender and monstrosity yeah and that kind of she has a she has a kind of um uh, something I was very interested in as well is also like in the really kind of combative hothouse um environment of a girls school the kind Mm. of the kinds of like warlike relationships that like girls in particular have with their own bodies and that is a, a kind of battle that Sue really struggles with um, throughout the novel um, it kind of intensifies for her yeah but that, that, that does relate to kind of the idea of um, in some ways the monstrous feminine like you know like like how like female bodies are commodified or made or regarded as other or, or hideous or um, uncanny um, throughout the book and I, I'm very very interested in um, like, yeah, literary theories of the monstrous feminine and monstrosity and, and um, how and why 
we perceive archetypal female characters as, you know, scary or errant or wrong, you know, the commonalities of that. Yeah. She is a little bit of a carry figure in a way, yeah. you know, in the high school, you know, the lone girl in high school. But she's also a final girl in like a, a horror film. Yeah. I think. And it's so interesting how you're mixing those two tropes together. And I guess the, the three characters and the three different points in time, you're, you're kind of excavating those tropes and stereotypes, maybe. Hopefully. Different, <laughs> different angles. Yeah, I've, I found it fascinating. It's such a, a great book for like different perspectives on, on the way that women relate to each other. Oh, thank you. All of that. Um, the book's absolutely redolent of Singapore, just, I mean, the food is described, Sue's kind of sticky on her way into school, all of it, you, and the, the Pontianak, as you saying, that whole mythology and the richness there. But I wondered kind of how your time in Norwich, yeah. a very different city, right. studying here, writing here, how how did that shape the book, if at all? Massively. I mean, I think like um, I I'd written the early iteration um, that I was describing where told the point of view of the monster, and then I felt it just really wasn't my my story to tell. It wasn't my angle. It is like um, born from Malay myth, and I felt uncomfortable, kind of in a way, um, taking on that voice. You know, I felt mm. it really wasn't my perspective as a Chinese Singaporean to kind of narrate from there. Um, so I looked at, I decided to kind of approach my sort of fascination in the sort of cultural and aesthetic, um, I don't know, the cultural and aesthetic questions raised by the mythology um, from the angle of um, filmmaking artifice. Um, so basically I watched this really excellent film um, directed by Peter Strickland called Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, about a um, sound uh, sound engineer played by Toby Jones. I love him. He reminds me of a pug as well. We were talking about pugs earlier. Um, <laughs> um, excellent actor. But he, he basically does all the sound effects for like those Jello films in the in the seventies. So like really kind of sleazy, almost exploitation like um, kind of horror films. And it's kind of like really endearing um, genre. Like um, I think uh, Luca. I can't pronounce his last name. The guy who did Call Me by Your Name. He's doing um a remake of Suspiria that's coming out really, really soon. So, I mean, obviously there's something about that very David Lynchy aesthetic, which, which you know, is really gripping and um, really endearing in popular culture. Mm. But yeah, so basically I, I juxtaposed the idea of, of um, monsters and the monstrous with the, the kind of artificiality of, of filmmaking. Once I'd seen that film and I thought, okay, like, giallo horror, B-horror movies, filmmaking, um, cheaply made films, um, production, actresses, acting, and then I thought of like this monster that I tried to write this kind of first-person narrative from the point of view of, I realized that I couldn't approach it that way because mm. there were no limits to power, A. B, there was also that kind of idea of representation and it being a bit problematic to me. Um, C, like that, that, that wasn't necessarily what I was interested in exploring the narrative. I wasn't interested in exploring the limits of, of an actual creature's power and not so much the idea of um, um, modernity versus superstition in such a kind of linear, like in such a direct way. It, it would have to kind of be filtered through a more personal story. Um, so so I, I kind of started writing from the point of view of the daughter because I, I felt like um, 
uh, you know, family, the family sphere, the domestic, particularly in like a single parent family unit where, you know, the dynamics are a lot more fraught and there's a lot more pressure um, to get along um, would be the perfect kind of setting to, to kind of frame this relationship mm. and um, to have someone observe the actress in what I call the intimate distance, like uh, uh, intimate proximity, um, where where the the monster, the Pontiana actress, you know, had the capacity to be incredibly hurtful and mm. incredibly withholding in a very very um, private setting. Mm. So not really acting for any camera, but really acting out in particular ways that that are born from like a kind of long-standing legacies of like pain and and stuff like that. So I I, I wrote that all in. Um, a little flat that was um, basically like a granny flat in um, the middle of Norwich, so it was near Magdalen Street. Yeah, brilliant. And that year, my first year of my PhD, I really wrote it like, because my, my, my supervisor uh, was just like, Shalini, you have to submit 5,000 words by whenever, so I was like, oh shit. So, so I was just like desperate, and I, I started writing from Sue's voice, but I, I just remember like the first, the first evening that I sat down to write it, and that beautiful flat so it was like really cobblestoney around and that was the year I really fell in love with Norwich because I, I before then I'd, I'd been on campus like for the fellowship accommodation and I just had a different relationship to Norwich like because I, I was on campus it was a bit brutalist a bit intense and they were surrounded by undergraduates running around you know getting their butts out just doing all kinds of wild fresher things it was a bit <laughs> depressing because even though I was only in my mid-20s I felt quite depressed quite old so like living in the center of town was a different different relationship to, to the city and um, the flat was really dark, and, and um, it had a basement um, with, where monks used to brew beer. And I oh, was wow. so afraid of the basement that I actually like, got my landlord to put a, a lock over the door. Because oh, wow. I had a dream once that a, like a weird knight was like standing over my bed, kind of creepy, huh? Yeah. And it was very very dark in that flat, so dark that like I had a peace lily and it just died. Or maybe I was just terrible <laughs> at keeping plants. So, but it was a really kind of subterranean kind of cave-like atmosphere and I absolutely loved it and I, I remember like I wrote like the first chapter like in this kind of like whoa like I felt like like this is like I, I kind of hit hit something that I was really excited about and I remember I went to the bicycle shop and I met my friend Anna um, that night and I, I remember telling her like oh you know for once like the writing's going well and it feels like being loved like I was kind of like oh my gosh I'm really in love with my word document and actually having a lot of fun like the rest of the time is just like a struggle I think most, most writers know sometimes it's just excruciating, like beginning a project. So like, I think when I hit on that, like, but yeah, definitely the whole environment of like being nourished, like off Magdalene Street, like I, I love that street with like all the kinds of like, all the shops with like, I think there's a Polish snack shop near me and like, like a, a shop that full of like, there's still a lot of spices and um, um, there was like a really old antiques shop full of really creepy dolls, like pretty much across the road from me. Um, yeah. I, I love all that. I mean, Norwich is such a strange city. I loved it living here. Yeah. Plenty of monsters around for inspiration. I mean, like, more like, like monk ghosts. I don't know. Like, yeah. I think as well what you were saying about being in love with the word document and there's definitely a joy in the writing. There's a point where you describe a moustache in, in the voices of one of the cat, uh, characters, but a moustache is a gothic caterpillar or something. And I just, there were so many images peppered through the book that oh. just uh, were wonderful oh. and had me falling off my chair um, in surprise and admiration. And yeah, it's how, how do you personally kind of get into that state of flow where the book's oh, God, coming out really I think like I think like um 
There's a writer I really respect very much called Robert Allen Butler who talks about, um, I love, one of my forms of procrastination is I love reading about craft. Mm. And I think like every writer would really benefit from reading. I know there's some people that just swear off it. Like they don't like to read books about writing, but I really do find it very self-soothing. But Robert Allen Butler talks about getting to as close as he can to the white hot center of like, he calls it the white hot center of yearning. Like how every story that is a moving story is, is governed by this kind of affective yearning, like a, a, kind of, a kind of emotional, philosophical, existential question that is the imperative for characters to move from point A to point B, because without, without that change, you don't have a story. Mm. So I feel that for me, like, um, like, I really love like, the idea of a novel as a long-form project because it's just a way to kind of gather together preoccupations that you're having like things that things that are fascinating or troubling you so I feel like you know with any sort of ongoing project I I just try and think as much not think actually I mean just really figure out what is the thing that's bothering me so it's not so simple as like oh you know for example like if I if I like you know had a breakup I'm gonna write a story about a breakup not at all it'd be more like like you know Years later, I write a story about like a bear that gets lost in the forest. You know, it's not like it's not so like easily sort of transposed from the minutia of reality. It's more mm. just like particular like um, um, feeling, like you know, aesthetic and emotional impulses that that govern people that interest me. You know? Yeah. 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 I have never written a story about a bear. I, that, that sounds quite ambitious. I don't. Think, I don't think I have the chops to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? I'm working on the next one, um, so okay. yeah, I'm, I think I'm about like, oh, it's just I'm at the stage where I'm not, I'm not in love with it yet, but I, I know like kind of what I need to do, I feel like um, I'm giving myself until the end of next year to like come up with a draft for it, so I'm, I'm kind of giving myself a bit of time because as you said, it is really hard to kind of contextualize a, a, the new project when you're talking about the old one all the time. It's like, it's like it's, you know, Ponty and I were married and I divorced my ex-wife and I had to talk about her all the time in public. <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> to move on, you know? Um, so, so I'm giving myself a bit of, of space to do that. Yeah. I mean, like, promoting it is really, like, sometimes it does really feel incredibly demanding. It's like a, it's like a job sometimes. Mm. But a lot of the time it's a privilege. It's like a, a pleasure that people, people actually care and they, like, they're, they're interested to hear me kind of waffling on about it it's it's, it's a pleasure <laughs> brilliant yeah uh yeah thank you so much for coming in to talk to us today charlene thank you for having me. thanks for listening and big thanks to charlene please do subscribe rate and review the podcast over on itunes stitcher spotify google podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening if you have writer friends then do let them know about us To make sure you're always the first to know about upcoming writing opportunities and events, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. Like us on our Facebook page and, of course, sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We have just put a whole load of new courses, events and online courses up on the website, so go check them out. Thanks again, keep writing, and I will catch you on the next episode.